This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. My mother called probably about 11 and told me she had a bad feeling and I need to go get Mike. And I told her when I get done folding these clothes, I'd go over there and get them. Five years ago this week, Michael Brown Sr. lost his son. I got a phone call that he was uh, laying in the middle of the street, dead. Michael Brown Jr. was black, he was 18, and he was unarmed when he was shot dead by Darren Wilson, a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. And as Michael Brown Sr. was trying to process this news, his son's killing was becoming an international story. In a suburb of St. Louis on Saturday afternoon, a police officer shot and killed an unarmed black teenager. This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. Shireen is out this week. What exactly happened on August 9, 2014 is contested even to this day. But here's what we do know. Michael Brown Jr. and his friend were walking down the street in Ferguson when Officer Wilson, in a police car, stopped them. And here's where the stories diverge. Officer Wilson said there was some kind of altercation through the police car door in which Brown reached for Wilson's gun. Michael Brown's friend who was with them said that didn't happen. Some witnesses say Brown was running at Officer Wilson like he was trying to attack him. But other people said that Michael Brown Jr. had his hands up like he was surrendering. But tensions between the residents in this mostly black city and its mostly white police department had been simmering for a long time. So when Michael Brown Jr. was killed and his body lay for the better part of a sweltering August afternoon surrounded by police and police tape, those frustrations boiled over. Last night, violence erupted again after the police released the name of the officer. Protesters from all over filled the streets of Ferguson for weeks, and at certain points, the conversations between the police and the residents and the protesters turned violent. But images from Ferguson captured the attention of the country, and the small inner ring suburb in the Midwest became the flashpoint in a national debate about race and policing. Today, we're looking at what changed, if anything, in Ferguson over the last five years since Michael Brown was killed. And to help us do that, we're talking to two reporters from St. Louis Public Radio. It's complicated. I think that's the best way to describe it. We'll hear from them after the break. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money. Your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth... Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. 
Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of NPR's Hidden Brain. Think deeply. Here to tell you about our summer series, U2.0. Ideas and advice about how you can respond to life's chaos. Just do it. Just check to my inbox. Just check. Just check. Just check to my phone real quick. With wisdom. Listen to Hidden Brain every week. Gene, just Gene, code switch. And joining us now to talk about the impact of Michael Brown's death five years later is St. Louis Public Radio's justice reporter, Rachel Lipman. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Gene. And newscaster, Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson. Hey, Marissa Ann. Hey, Jean. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Marissa Ann, for those of our listeners who've never been to St. Louis County, can you just describe the city of Ferguson for us? How big is it? You know, who lives there? There is a little bit more than 20,000 people. It's a predominantly black city. About 67% or so of the population is black. Ferguson is in the northern part of St. Louis County. And prior to the events of Ferguson, some black residents described it as it being a quiet place, um, a good place to raise your family. Um, It's considered in the past a sundown town. And for those who don't know what that is, it means that black people couldn't be there when the sun went down or really bad things uh, would happen. (laughs) Back in the 80s, it was 85 percent white when you hit. 2010, it's about 30%. So when you look at Ferguson, you know, it's in North County. And when people think of North County, they think more specifically um, the black part of the county. So can you explain how this region came to exist this way, the segregated region full of inner ring suburbs and outer ring suburbs that have very different municipalities? Ferguson actually incorporated as a city pretty early on. It was a railroad town. There was a a big train depot there that is actually now a historic building. A lot of these other suburbs, though, incorporated because they wanted power. They wanted the ability to control zoning, to control who was able to move in there, to control what their cities looked like. And for a lot of those cities at first, it was probably they wanted to keep their cities white. They wanted to keep their cities looking the way that they had for decades and decades and decades. So Michael Brown's death brought a lot of attention to the specific relationship between the mostly black residents on the black side of town in Ferguson and the mostly white police force. So what does that relationship look like today? It's complicated. I think that's the best way to describe it. Oh, no, I don't trust the police at all. I would trust the stranger on the street before I trust the police. Mac Walker is a resident of Ferguson. And I remember when I spoke with him, that's what it is. There is no trust in the police, no matter uh, where he is in his life. I have seen the police, like, watch. Numerous of people just died without helping. I have seen the police let somebody die. They threw a cup of ice in the air, and somebody shot that guy because the ice landed on his car. And the police watched that boy die in the alley because I watched him die in the alley. For 30 minutes, no ambulance come, nothing. So I do would never trust the police because at any given time, that black guy could be me. And I think if you look at recently the attorney general's office here in Missouri, blacks are still getting disproportionately pulled over compared to whites. So why would you trust the police when you're seeing that? And usually the contraband numbers, it's when whites are pulled over, they have contraband in their car more often than black people do. So you see that 
That hasn't changed in the least bit. Why would you trust the police? And of course, so much of this contact that people are having, that the public is having with police is not contact that they're consenting to, right? I mean, we learned in the aftermath of the shooting just the extent to which that the fines collected during these police stops uh, and associated court fees um, were the second largest revenue stream for the city of Ferguson. So the police in the town actually had an economic incentive to stop drivers, as we said, who were overwhelmingly and disproportionately black. So after Michael Brown was killed and there was this new focus on the Ferguson Police Department, the city entered into a federal consent decree with the Obama administration, meaning the federal government would monitor the police there and require that the police there were not abusing people's civil rights. So first of all, what did the consent decree ask of the Ferguson Police Department? And what happened with that? Where does that stand today? So this is a major lift for the Ferguson Police Department and for its municipal courts. It had to revamp all of its police policies around use of force, traffic stops, community policing, had to work to get the residents involved with oversight of the department through what's known as the Neighborhood Policing Steering Committee. There's a civilian review board. There's Mm -hmm. neighborhood associations that they had to get involved. And the consent decree even says that the city, quote, desires to focus its attention and resources on implementing a better community-oriented policing model and to become an exemplar of modern community-oriented policing for the entire region and for other cities of similar size, of about 20,000 people, these really lofty goals. Okay. The municipal court side, it had to do some restructuring of staffing. It removed the court from under the oversight of the finance director, so it's not directly connected to the city's budget. Uh-huh. They had to provide information about your rights in court and stop prosecuting a lot of these really, really, really old municipal court cases. And remember, municipal court is not something like the most serious crime you're probably going to get in there is a DUI, DWI. This isn't, you know, rape, murder, serious assault, robbery. This Mm -hmm. is trespassing, stealing under 500, graffiti, dogs running loose, etc. And so these were the things that were suggested by the in the consent decree or these are the things that were agreed to? The consent decree is mandatory. It's, you know, basically settling a civil rights lawsuit against the city. This is a legal binding document. It's uh, there's an outside monitor checking to see if they're complying with it. But it's a federal judge that says, yes, you are meeting all of these requirements in here or no, you aren't. And Ferguson signed off on it. So five years into this, is Ferguson meeting any of these standards? Well, the consent decree itself is really only about three years old. So this they entered into it in April 2016, and the first deadlines didn't really hit until July of 2016. Um, it's met some of the hundreds of criteria. They've worked through revamping their policies. Use of force is the first one that's gone through what is a pretty extensive review process, and that's now being rolled out to the rank and file. Um, they have developed a community outreach plan. They are working on the neighborhood policing plan. They've developed a training committee. But there are a lot of areas in which the city is really falling short, and it's on kind of this implementation side of things. For example, they were supposed to have appointed one person to serve as a consent decree monitor, a consent decree coordinator. And that person's job was just to like make sure that they were holding up yeah, their Yeah, to be kind of like the high-level person, you know, be like, are you meeting this deadline? Are you meeting this deadline? Basically a coach. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first things they should have done. It hasn't happened yet. They just put out a, you know, request for this person. Hey, come apply for this kind of thing. Um, they don't have a dedicated community outreach coordinator for police department. They haven't put together a recruiting and staffing plan. They haven't really worked to develop neighborhood associations in the big apartment complexes, which includes Canfield, which was where Michael Brown was killed. Activists are taking this as a sign that the city 
isn't really taking the consent decree seriously. Mm-hmm. So is this policing for profit, though, is that still a thing in Ferguson? I mean, yes, to the extent that people are still being pulled over and they are still being charged fines and fees. But because of some restrictions placed on all cities, Ferguson and every other municipality in St. Louis County and the state of Missouri, the money coming in isn't as much. It has capped the fines and fees for everything from traffic stops to ordinance violations at 20 percent of the budget, and it set maximum fines and fees. So the worst impulses have been kind of controlled because there are limits on how much they can bring in. During the unrest in Ferguson, the mayor of Ferguson was a man named James Knowles. Uh, Now, today, the mayor of Ferguson is the same man, James Knowles. Uh, How did he manage to hold on to his seat? And have there been any political changes in the city's leadership since then? So, yeah, in some ways, there have been a lot of political changes. Basically, the entire city council has turned over in five years. That police chief is gone. The city manager is gone. The court clerk is gone. Um, The biggest change is on the council. It's really the first time there's been a majority black council representing what is a majority black city. It happened for like a two or three month period back in 2016. That is in large part due to Fran Griffin. She defeated a white incumbent for a seat in the third ward. That includes the place where Michael Brown was shot. She also incidentally ran against Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden. Um, Griffin was out on the streets after Brown was shot. She was a protester in her own community. But she made the transition to politics because she thought Southeast Ferguson, which is where a lot of the black residents live. It's where those big apartment complexes are. She felt that Southeast Ferguson was still being ignored, even after everything that went down in that ward. Like you mentioned, though, the biggest non-change is the fact that James Knowles remains mayor. He avoided a recall election back in 2015 and then got reelected to a third and final term in 2017 by more than 500 votes. And he won over a black member of the city council, Ella Jones. I imagine it's going to sound surprising to a lot of people that the mayor who oversaw this period of policing in Ferguson, who was presiding over the city during this moment of unrest that made international news, that this person managed to hold on to their spot. In a city that's mostly black, that is carrying the burden of a lot of this stuff, why wasn't he easily removed from office? Well, I think it's the assumption is wrong that all of the African-American community would support an African-American candidate. There were some within kind of more activist vein who didn't see Ella Jones as really kind of representing them and, you know, what they wanted to have happen on the council. But a lot of it also, too, is Ferguson is a transient community. A lot of these people are living in Ferguson because it's where they can find housing. They don't have the time necessarily to go and vote, to get involved, to pay attention to it. And Knowles has been able to survive and and turn out the vote. And that's what he was able to do. So what has happened to Darren Wilson, who was the police officer who shot Michael Brown? Nobody really knows. Uh, The last we heard from him was in 2015 when he did an article uh, for The New Yorker, Mm -hmm. spoke to a reporter for The New Yorker. At the time, he'd moved outside of Ferguson. He never lived in Ferguson. He'd always lived outside of Ferguson. We don't know where he's living now. Uh, We know that he had married a fellow Ferguson officer. 
um, and they have at least one child together. Is that person still on the force? I don't believe so. No, I don't think either of them are still on the force. I know that he is still technically a licensed police officer in the state of Missouri. His license is inactive right now, meaning that he hasn't completed the necessary continuing education that you have to every year by state standards. But if he were to get up to speed on those continuing education credits, he could go be hired by a new police department. Let's talk about Michael Brown's family for a second. Uh, Where are they in 2019? So I spent some time with his father, Michael Brown Sr., and his family. In general, it's a one day at a time sort of thing. You know, to put everything into perspective, in the months following Michael Brown's death, his siblings, the older ones anyway, were in school. It was something that was talked about in the classroom. Um, When I was talking to Michael Brown Sr., he was saying to me that, his kids had to write essays about their brother being killed. Oh, my God. So can you imagine having to sit in a classroom and you're trying to deal with something that has happened to you and you have to also talk about it? Of course, there were kids who said that, you know, their brother deserved it. That obviously caused some problems um, in school. The younger kids, they're still having their moments, you know. They ask a lot of questions about their brother. They ask, you know, what happened. They still remember the good times, even though many of them were well under the age of eight during that time. They're still hurting, too. He has a sibling, I think, that I'm not even sure was born or was very, very, very young. Yep. She was very, very young. And when I spent time with his family at their house— It was very interesting because you think to yourself, how is it that you are, I think she's about six-ish, how is it that you remember this person? How do you have these memories? And she would talk about him just being so proud, like, this is my brother, showing me pictures. And it hits you really hard that you're talking to children who have experienced these horrible things in their lives. As far as his father, Michael Brown Sr., the best way to describe it is he's working through this very dark tunnel of emotions. Michael was his firstborn. A month before he was killed, um, Michael served as his father's best man in his wedding. And although it took a lot of work to get his son there, his he finally graduated from high school, Normandy High School. And he was in summer school, so he ended up graduating on August 1st. Timeline-wise, eight days later, he was killed. When I spoke to his father, I asked him, you know, when he saw him for the first time, which um, unfortunately was in his casket, one of the things that came to mind was the day he graduated. That was uh, a proud day for for me, probably than him, you know, because uh, I struggled with school, you know, and he struggled too, but he did it, you know. So that was just like the like the biggest thing that ever happened. Like I like I say, I probably was more prouder than him, you know. Uh, it was a happy moment. And I can still see it on your face. Like, <laughs> yeah, he did yeah, it. He did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And these days, um, Michael spends a lot of his time at colleges and honestly, anywhere that people will listen, sharing his son's story in a way that humanizes his son. And 
when he's at home, he spends a lot of time visiting his son at the cemetery. A lot of his nights are pretty restless, you know, and talking to him, sometimes he will venture out there at one, two, three o'clock in the morning. I just tell him I miss him all the time. I just sit there. Sometimes I don't even say nothing. I just look at the ground, you know. Um, it's just a, a, it's just a moment for me, you know. Um, just taking time out and spending, spending time out there, you know, where it's peaceful. You know, anytime I go to Ferguson, you know, it's people blowing. People want to pull over, want to talk to me when I go to, you know, Ground Zero. This place is where I can go and I can sit and don't nobody bother me, and I can be in peace with him. So what happened to Michael Brown's mother, Leslie McSpadden, after she ran for city council and lost? Not much that we know of since she ran. Um, there had been some questions as to whether she actually lived in Ferguson. She did own a house there, but also owned a house outside of Ferguson. I've been struck by a kind of how they've dealt with it in their own ways. I've always felt, and this was just my perception, that Michael Brown Sr. leaned into the activism role in a way that maybe Leslie McSpadden didn't feel comfortable doing, but felt as maybe it was a duty to do in some ways. Um, Marsan and I were actually talking one time about how you know more of the black, you know, black mother's son idea. You know Michael Brown's mother. You know Trayvon Martin's mother. You know Jordan Davis's mother, Lucy McBath. To me, and again, I'm going to emphasize that this is to me. I am not taking away any of the agency that Leslie McSpadden had to make decisions. It always felt to me as though Michael Brown Sr. was coming from it from a more, I have chosen this, I have leaned into it, even if it hurts. Whereas Leslie McSpadden was leaning into it in a way that felt, I am doing this because whatever forces acting on me have directed me into this role. So she's working through it in her own way as well. She felt that running for office would help her work through it. I don't know what has become of her since the 2019 election. So here's a question I have for both of you. Michael Brown's killing came just weeks after Eric Garner's killing at the hands of police in New York City. It was literally just days after John Crawford's killing at the hands of police in Ohio. And both of those killings were actually caught on video. But Ferguson and Michael Brown's shooting in this relatively unknown inner ring suburb in the Midwest became the flashpoint to the point that we talk about, you know, before and after Ferguson. So why did Ferguson become this moment? I took it as a culmination of a lot of things. It wasn't just a police killing. It was a police killing that as a, was a result of over-policing. You know, these guys really weren't doing anything other than walking in the street and got pulled over. We later learned that Darren Wilson may have known that they were a suspect in the strong-armed robbery. But again, you could argue just someone deserved to lose their life because they pushed someone for a pack of cigarillos. It wasn't just a killing. It was the third killing in the month. Like you mentioned, Eric Gardner, John Crawford, both kind of within those weeks leading up to it. It wasn't just a killing, but it was his body lying in the street Mm -hmm. for those four and a half hours. I don't think there's anything specific about Ferguson, why why this happened in Ferguson particularly. Like you don't sit there and go, oh, yeah, of course it would have been Ferguson. If this had happened a couple of blocks north of where it did – You'd have hashtag Delwood, hashtag Mike Brown instead of Ferguson. And also, let's make it a note that Michael Brown Jr. 
was not a resident of Ferguson. He was visiting family. He was visiting friends. He was kind of like in between spaces. But it's not like Ferguson was the official place he called home. He became a son of Ferguson because he was killed in Ferguson. And people saw in him their sons, their their black sons especially. Do the folks in Ferguson ever just talk about what it's like that their city is now known for this incident, for all of this unrest? It depends on who you talk to. Some people just don't want to talk about it at all because for some it's it's seen as like a stain, you know, on their community. And like people think of our community in such a horrible way. But in reality, their community is a loving place. You know, you have all these people still here after all this time raising their families there. When you're talking about kind of like how people like view the small community, they view it as home. I think that's just the best way to describe it. It's still home to them. And I mean, it's kind of hard to focus on what people think about you internationally when you're trying to rebuild your own home. What are your big takeaways five years after Michael Brown's death? I'm struck by how little things have actually changed. There were grand plans. There were grand discussions. There was a great awakening, quote unquote, let's talk about this. Let's have conversations about this. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, people aren't being nickeled and dimed with unfair court fines, unfair fees. They're not going to jail because they can't pay those fines and fees and then losing their kids, jobs, houses, etc., You could argue it's making people reevaluate their biases and kind of understand what's at work in their communities. I I grew up in St. Louis. Those little speed trap towns in North St. Louis County, they were a joke for us. It was, oh, look, it's the end of the month. They have to be out there getting (laughs) revenue. Ha, ha, ha. As a white kid with a lot of advantages, I wasn't going to get pulled over. And if I did, I could probably afford to pay whatever fine or fee they were going to give me. You don't know when you're joking about, oh, haha, it's, you know, time for them to get their revenue, A, that it was actually true, mm-hmm. and B, what that looked like for the people on the other side. Missouri General Assembly has done a couple of things around criminal justice issues and sentencing reform. But you had the Ferguson Commission. It was a committee put together of stakeholders. They were going to take this big, great dive into some of the issues that Michael Brown's death had uncovered. And they put out this 204-page report with you know an epic amount of recommendations around justice, racial equality, putting youth at the center, these grand ideas. And so, so little has been done. Even simple things like having the State Highway Patrol investigate officer-involved shootings. And on bigger things that could actually address some of the issues of poverty, nada. I mean, a lot of that is because there isn't a willing partner at the state or federal level, which is where a lot of the change would have to come from. But a lot of it is also just, I think there was an element of, we've talked about it, we feel good about it, and this will be just come another report that we can tuck on the shelf and point back to five years later and say, look, we we did something. People have been working on this for years, and sadly, after this conversation, they're still going to be working on it because we're nowhere near where people are going to be treated equal. Period. Rachel and Marissa Ann, thank you so much. Thank you, Jean. Thanks for having me. Rachel Lipman is a criminal justice reporter for St. Louis Public Radio, and Marissa Ann Lewis-Thompson is the afternoon newscaster for St. Louis Public Radio. All right, y'all. That's our show. 
If you want to hear an extended interview with Michael Brown Sr., as well as thoughts and reflections from dozens of St. Louisans about what happened five years ago and how those events still impact their lives, be sure to check out livingferguson.org from St. Louis Public Radio. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. You can follow me at G-E-E-D-E-E-215. Sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash code switch. This episode was produced by Kumar Devarajan with help from our intern, Jess Kung. It was edited by Sammy Yenigan. And shout-outs, of course, to the rest of the Code Switch squadron, Leah Danella, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kat Chow, Adrian Florido, L.A. Johnson, and Steve Drummond. Our interns are Michael Paulino and Jess Kung. I'm Gene Demby. Bezio. The world is complicated, but knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come in. I'm Randa Abdel Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablui, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.